You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. In the next 25 years, the number of women and Hispanic veterans will double, while African-American veterans will increase by a third. Is the military changing to address these changing dynamics? On June 13th, the Washington Post Live explored the dramatically changing demographics of Americans' military veterans. There are a record number of women veterans in Congress, and one of them wants to be the next Commander-in-Chief. In this segment, we'll hear from 2020 Democratic presidential candidate Representative Tulsi Gabbard about her efforts to improve the quality of access to medical care for all veterans. Let's listen. Good morning, I'm Bob Costa, national political reporter here at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us for another Post Live conversation. Pleased to be joined by Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard of Hawaii. It's great to be here. Great to be, great to have you here. A member of the Armed Services Committee. Yes. uh, Also the Foreign Relations, uh, Foreign Affairs Committee inside the House of Representatives. Was first elected in 2012 to the U.S. House after serving as an aide uh, in the U.S. Senate. Also worked on the Honolulu City Council then decided to run for, the, for, the, for Congress and won in 2012. She's now running for the White House, a Democratic presidential candidate, seeking the nomination with, with just a few other Democrats. Just a couple moment. other, just a couple a other folks. <laughs> but let's begin with veterans' issues. Yeah. We just heard from Senator McSally. You're one of the leading female veterans in American politics. When you think about women in the military, which issue is at the top of your, of your list of concerns? Uh, that's a tough. That's a tough question because um, there are a number of challenges that we face. Uh, we, you heard Senator McSally talk a lot about sexual assault in the military. This continues to be an issue that many women in the military are dealing with and struggling with. But what a lot of folks don't often talk about is that it's an issue that a lot of men in the military are also dealing with. Um, we just wrapped up a marathon meeting in the Armed Services Committee last night, as you know. It started at 10 a.m. yesterday. We wrapped up at 7 a.m. this morning. Uh, but one of the issues that we dealt with was sexual assault in the military, because what we're seeing is even from 2016 to 2018, the numbers of sexual, assault in the mil- sexual assaults in the military that have been reported have gone up 38%. Now, some people are saying, well, hey, maybe that's a positive sign in that more and more people are actually reporting, whereas previously they weren't. But regardless, what it tells us is that this is something that is still too prevalent, and the current system that is in place within the military justice system uh, is not providing that justice. What's one step Congress could take on that front? uh, Well, I I firmly believe that there has to be a transparent, independent um, approach outside of the chain of command where a young enlisted soldier can go to someone who she knows, he or she knows, is not going to have um, the bias that sometimes exists with a commander. And this is something we've heard so often from young soldiers and and service members who come forward and say, you know, make the report, I'm a victim of sexual assault. The commander or the first sergeant says, well, the guy or the girl who, who you're saying has done this, they're my best soldier. They would never do such a thing. I don't believe you. So you don't trust the chain of command to handle it? Well, what we have seen is that this problem has just continued to get worse. And I don't believe that we trust that a commander is going to do the right thing all the time, because we know, based on evidence and 
um, the experiences that we've had, both ourselves and with people who we know and other service members who've come forward, unfortunately there are those who abuse their positions of power. And in a situation such as this, look, I served as an enlisted soldier as well as, as a company commander, so I personally have lived on both sides of this. The command authority is important, but commanders are not trained and equipped to be investigators of sexual assault or to prosecute it themselves. You said you personally lived through these issues. Did you ever personally yeah. deal with harassment or other issues? I've dealt with harassment, absolutely. Uh, when I dealt with these issues, thankfully I had a commander who I went to, told him what was going on, and he immediately took action and did something about it. Uh, others who I served with um, were not so fortunate. Uh, a friend of mine uh, was raped just prior to our deployment, and she refused to report it to the chain of command. And as much as we encouraged and urged her to do so, she did not trust um, that justice would be served and that within the small community, within our unit, that there would not be some form of direct or indirect form of retaliation or exclusion. You this, is, this is part of the problem. You joined the Army National Guard in 2003. When you're enduring those kind of experiences or watching friends or colleagues go through that, what does that do to your spirit as, as a soldier? It's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking because the bond between soldiers and service members is something so special and it's and it's something that um, and is, is really unbreakable and necessary for that unit cohesion where as we're training up for a deployment to the National Guard we we need to know without a shadow of a doubt that when we're downrange and when rounds are flying that my battle buddies got my back and I've got theirs. And that's what's so problematic about this issue of sexual assault within the military is it drives that wedge um, and undermines that, that unit cohesion. Do you think if there was an independent body dedicated to these issues, it should be privately run or run within the military? I think it needs to be run within the military because you've got people who understand the unique military culture uh, and environment. If you bring in somebody uh, who comes in completely from the outside and doesn't get it, then you've got unnecessary obstacles uh, and hurdles there. Uh, there is an amendment that Congresswoman Jackie Spears introduced uh, in the, the defense bill last night that I supported um, that seeks to put forward a pilot program within our academies, our military academies, where we are seeing prevalent sexual assault and harassment, yet very minimal reporting. Um, and the amendment says, hey, maybe we should look into appointing kind of like a special prosecutor within the military justice system who's independent of the chain of command who can then look at uh, prosecuting, uh, investigating and prosecuting these crimes. The VA is starting to move toward private health care, at least allowing access to private health care yeah. for many veterans. Do you support that decision that's starting this month? You know, I don't support privatizing the VA. But they're privatizing access. In certain circumstances, it makes sense. Rural areas, high traffic areas? Absolutely. If, if a veteran, ultimately, this is the bottom line, if a veteran is not able to get the care that they need in a timely fashion, they need to have the option to go and get the care somewhere else. Um, a friend of mine in Hawaii, he was on the verge of having a heart attack. He went to the hospital that was closest to his home, went to the emergency room, was admitted, was told by the VA, we're not gonna pay for you to get the open heart surgery that you need at that hospital because it's a private hospital. 
we're going to send over an ambulance for you. And the doctor in the ER is saying he will not survive the trip to the VA hospital. And so ultimately, we were able to work through the bureaucracy to make it so he was able to get the care that he needed. But it's that kind of, um, those kinds of obstacles that our veterans should not be having to deal with when they're in that need of care. One of the things you saw when you were serving in the Middle East in your, on your tours were burn pits. And these are yeah. large piles of waste on, on or near military bases where they're essentially put on fire. And the fumes are in the air. It's constant. And you're calling for more regulation yeah. of burn pits. So far, it looks like your legislation to hi highly regulate burn pits and disclose what they're, where they are and wh what's in them is part of this defense authorization bill that's expected to get a vote later this year. Mm -hmm. Are you confident, though, that your legislation will remain part of that defense authorization? Congress is unpredictable, as you well know. Uh, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. Has leadership this, assured you at all? Uh, there, we have the support of leadership, uh, which has been shown both within the full Congress as well as in the Armed Services Committee, as well as the Veterans Affairs Committee. Uh, one thing that our bill does, and it's something I'm working with my colleague, uh, Republican Congressman Brian Mast on, another fellow veteran who also was exposed to burn pits, as I and so many others were. What, what our provision does is it mandates the DOD to actually keep track, name by name, of service members who've been exposed to these toxic burn pits, because that's the biggest challenge that we have initially, just in the beginning. There's so much that we need to do. But the burn pit registry that the VA has only has, what, about 175,000 people who've registered. But the VA themselves are openly saying that there are likely over 3 million service members who've actually been exposed to toxic burn pits and not just for a few hours, not just for a day or a week, but for those of us who were deployed for just over a year in Iraq on our first deployment, it was every single day for that entire year. So at a, at a baseline, the DOD and the VA need to track name by name and not say, hey, oh, if you were exposed and you need to come forward and you have to prove it and all this other stuff. No, that's not, that's not where the onus lies. The onus lies on the Department of Defense to make sure that they are taking care of our troops who are exposed to these toxic burn pits. And you said you were exposed to these fumes? Every day. What effect has it had day. on your life? Uh, look, I, thankfully, I'm of good health now. But what I've seen in people who I served with, people who are in my medical unit who I've served with, is something we're seeing prevalent amongst many service members of our post-9-11 generation, where they are getting throat cancers, prostate cancers, different types of cancers that are not normal for people of that age uh, and that level of health uh, and fitness. Uh, other respiratory illnesses, respiratory, respiratory illnesses were very prevalent amongst um, those of us. If you got sick, you got this thing called the crud and you were sick and you were coughing for months at a time sometimes. So um, what we're seeing, unfortunately, is that not only the, the, not only the direct impact while we were deployed, but now, you know, I mean, I was deployed there in 2005, all of 2005, and uh, a number of people who I know personally are battling cancer uh, who were there with me at that time, and, and this is not an exception, unfortunately. It's becoming the rule. You're speaking as a leader of the 9-11 generation, the post-9-11 generation yeah. of people who served in those conflicts. There's also the issue of Vietnam that's come up in the 2020 yes. presidential race. President Trump received several deferments, including a medical deferment for bone spurs. 
from serving in Vietnam? Do you believe President Trump should have served? Uh, look, those who found a way to get out of serving their country, I think, is, is unfortunate. And I just speak from my personal experience where, no, we didn't have the draft. Uh, but being able to serve and to deploy with such amazing Americans and to be in that place like none other, serving in a combat zone where you experience um, serving people who embody what it means to put service above self, where you know we had people from all across the country, uh, people of every race, uh, religion, uh, orientation, Democrats, Republicans, independents, such diversity, and we stood together, united you in did. our mission. You did, but what about President service. Trump? Should he have served in Vietnam? You know. I personally don't think highly of those who uh, that chose, cho chose to to dodge. Um, their so he service. did. He did dodge, in your view. I don't know the details of. of well, I just told you he yeah. got a medical different yeah. from Bone. I, 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 yeah, I don't know. I don't know the details of that is the of detail. what he did and and exactly why. So. Okay. What about Vice President Biden? He got many deferments from Vietnam, including a medical deferment for asthma. Should he have served? Again, I'm not, gonna, I'm not a doctor, so I'm not going to comment on that. I know that there are people who I've served with who have received medical discharges because of asthma, so I'm not going to pretend to be the judge of all of this. I can only speak from my experience and how grateful I am to, to have had the opportunity to serve. So no judgment of Vice President Biden's Vietnam experience or his medical deferment because you're saying you're not a doctor. You don't want to have any more comment on that? Yeah, no. I, I don't think it's productive in any way. I can only speak to my own experience. When you think about foreign policy, one, one phrase you often use is the cost of war. Yeah. And you've articulated a foreign policy that is in contrast to some other Democrats in terms of who you've engaged with. When you think about terrorism in the Middle East, you've fought in the Middle East and served. Do you think President Assad of Syria could be an ally of the U.S. encountering terrorism in the future? Uh, I don't know the answer to that, perhaps. Um, we've got to be clear about one thing that I think gets lost in this discussion and this conversation, which is the terrorist attack that occurred on September 11th by al-Qaeda uh, was the beginning of a war that continues to be waged. Um, it was that terrorist attack, like so many Americans, that um, inspired me to enlist in the military. Uh, to try to do my part to serve my country uh, and to go after those who attacked us. Um, now, we can talk about different strategy and, and what's going on. I think the, the reality is that in Syria, since you brought up Syria, um, you hear from people like Brett McGurk as, as long as two years ago saying al-Qaeda is stronger in Syria today than ever before. And this is one of the reasons why I'm so outspoken on our uh, ending our regime change war policies is because in Syria specifically there was a CIA program that was directly and indirectly helping to equip and train and provide support to different uh, armed groups including those who are allied with and, and affiliated with al-Qaeda to overthrow the Syrian government. This has directly attributed to the growth of al-Qaeda today, where they're, they're in control of an entire city in Syria. Just to 
understand that point. Yeah. Does the CIA shoulder some blame for the rise of al-Qaeda in Syria? The decisions made to initiate that program that the CIA led uh, does carry responsibility for using taxpayer dollars that ultimately helped strengthen al-Qaeda in Syria. That's why I introduced a bill called the Stop Arming Terrorists Act. You would think you wouldn't need something like that, but taxpayer dollars should not be used to provide support, arms, or otherwise to terrorist groups like al-Qaeda or others who are supporting them. You used the word perhaps in terms of President Assad as a possible partner in countering terrorism in al-Qaeda in Syria. When you say perhaps, how do you factor in his record on human rights, the attacks on civilians? Well, I think if we're going into Syria, as our troops have been deployed there, they're deployed there under the 2001 authorization to use military force that was passed by Congress after the attacks on 9-11 to go after terrorist groups like al-Qaeda and those affiliated with them. Um, that is the reason our troops have gone and deployed there to help and work with other local forces on the ground, like the Kurds in the north, uh, to fight against al-Qaeda uh, and ISIS. Uh, there are others within the region who share that objective. I think that we should be working with them. There are also others in the region who have proven to not share that objective uh, and have been, and there's evidence time and again of, of Turkey, for example, uh, allowing open passage to both al-Qaeda and ISIS in and out of Syria, restocking them, providing arms and support to them, uh, along with countries like Saudi Arabia and others. So, Again, I think this mission of, of regime change wars has been so counterproductive and costly to our service members, and it's actually undermined our national security uh, in places like Syria, where, again, al-Qaeda is stronger now uh, than at any other time since 9-11, actually. Do you accept that Assad used chemical weapons? Uh, that has been reported. Uh, there is also new information coming out from the UN and their... Uh, What's that new information? That, that their OPCW, their organization that is um, directly supposed to investigate the use of chemical weapons in different parts of the world. There was a report that was leaked a few weeks ago uh, basically calling into question some of the, re some of the previous reports um, and changing their outlook, saying, hey, rather than, for example, uh, missiles being dropped from a helicopter, it looks like it was a staged attack, and those missiles were placed there by hand. So anyway, it's a serious issue, and I'm looking into this further. I've reached out to the OPCW to get more information, uh, because coming from someone who served in Iraq, uh, a, a war that was based on lies uh, and false evidence, I think it's important for all of us, those in the media, those in Congress, and Americans to ask the tough questions, ask for the So you evidence. haven't made a conclusion yet. You're still in a fact-finding phase. There's still more information that's coming out. What about uh, President Putin in Russia? How do you see his role in helping or not helping the U.S. on terrorism issues in the Middle East? I think there's an opportunity to work with others who are concerned about this terrorist threat coming from groups like al-Qaeda and ISIS. Uh, Putin has talked directly about his concern in that area that we share, given the thousands of foreign fighters who uh, have left both Russia and other former Soviet states and gone to join the forces of al-Qaeda and ISIS in places like Syria and like other European countries who, who have seen other foreign fighters go there, they are concerned So should the about, U.S. be working more with Putin on these issues? 
to defeat this shared threat, um, like al-Qaeda and ISIS, I think we should be working with others, whether it's Russia or other countries who share the same concern. But others would say, uh, critics of Putin, that he interfered in the elections in 2016 and he wouldn't be a, a, par a natural partner because of that. Look, I think, it's, I think it's dangerous when we look at the state of affairs that we're in now, where there's ever-escalating tensions between the United States and nuclear-armed countries like Russia and China, uh, because it's pushing us closer and closer to the brink of nuclear war. It's something nuclear strategists now are saying we are, we are closer to the likelihood of nuclear catastrophe now. Between than, the U.S. and Russia? We, between U.S. and Russia, and you can also see escalating tensions between the U.S. and China. Um, they've been studying this issue for a long time and are, and are recognizing that if we continue down this same path that we are on, the inevitable result will be nuclear war. And it's not a war that the United States can win. It's not, not a path a that, the U.S. went that, on. The Russia intervened in the elections. Well, I'm, I'm, talking the about, I'm talking about the, situ the overall situation that we are in. Yes, there are issues that we have with Russia. We've got to work out those differences. But on issues like counterterrorism, there's a shared objective. And I think there's opportunity for us uh, to be able to work with others who are serious about um, defeating that threat. What did you think cyber of the Mueller report? Cybersecurity is, is another issue. Well, on that front, on cybersecurity in Russia, the first volume of the Mueller report is all about Russian interference. Does that, did that specific part of the Mueller report alarm you, or do you think it was overheated? You know what alarms me most when people talk about interference in our election is the fact that even with all the discussion and the focus that there has been on this issue since 2016, as we sit here today, there are still many states in this country who have no paper ballot or no paper backup to their electronic voting systems. So when we go in and cast our votes and there's some question called in about some interference or manipulation of those votes, many of these states have no paper trail to audit the votes that we cast. This is something I've introduced legislation to address called the Securing America's Elections Act, which very, very simply just says you either use a paper ballot right. or if you yeah. use an electronic system, there has to be a voter verified paper backup. Virginia is a state in 2017 that recognized this vulnerability in their own election where they saw in a, in a hacking conference, there was a teenager who hacked into an election system in less than 15 minutes. They immediately made a change in their system, had those paper ballots put in place, and they did not, that year, they had not a single complaint about the integrity of the, of the votes being cast. The integrity of the ballot, such an important issue. It's, but also, it's everything. Well, it's not I, everything. I don't, think we, can, about, I don't think we can discount What about the this. disinformation campaign? In the 20, you're a presidential candidate in 2020. Our federal government has yeah. reported that disinformation is expected again in 2020. What steps should be taken and how much of a threat is it? You know, I, I have faith in the American people. If you look online every single day on Twitter, on Facebook, on social media, bloggers, different news sources, uh, there, there are a lot of people who are putting out their own information to try to influence others. And this is coming from people here. It's coming from people in other countries. I think we've got to have faith in the American people to recognize the truth and to be able to have the intelligence to make the decisions. A lot on of time they can't they on social want. media. It's very difficult for so some who people. Will, so this, 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 becomes, this becomes a challenge, right? And this is what we're seeing in social media now, which I think is really dangerous, is you have Facebook and Google, for example. This is something that, that we're debating heavily. 
who have such great power that they are now going to be the arbiters for who they believe is telling the truth or what kind of information or what kind of opinions they want the American people to see. I think that's really dangerous because again, let's have faith in the American people. Let's have faith in voters to be able to discern what their opinions are, how they feel about different issues and what kind of leader they want for our country. I'm not sure if you saw President Trump's interview with ABC News yet, but he was asked this question. Would you accept opposition research from a foreign actor or a hostile power? I strongly disagree with that statement. You would not? I would not, absolutely not. And you re would, would report it to the FBI? Yes, without a doubt. Do you think we're heading toward war with Iran? <sighs> I certainly hope not. Uh, the actions of this administration, people like John Bolton, Mike Pompeo, my concern is they appear to be setting the stage for uh, a war between the United States and Iran. What do you mean setting the stage? They are, they are hyping up uh, and escalating these tensions that began with Trump withdrawing from the Iran nuclear deal, with ratcheting up sanctions, strangling the Iranian economy, even though U.S. and uh, you know, European and other intelligence sources said that Iran was complying with the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, these things are creating a scenario where um, a war against Iran is seeming more and more likely but I think it's important for us and for the American people to understand a war against Iran would make the war in Iraq look like a cakewalk. The cost, the human cost on our service members is immeasurable. The human cost on not only people in Iran, but people all across the region would be devastating. The refugee crisis that would be heavily escalated uh, in Europe. Uh, the cost, trillions of dollars that would cost us as the American people to wage such a war and recognize that this is not a war that would be contained just in Iran. We're talking about Iran and Iraq, uh, Israel, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, all of these countries across the region getting sucked in to this war. And, and it's something that I believe strongly we need to do all we can to prevent. Uh, I was able to include legislation in the defense bill last night that said nothing in this bill can be misconstrued as an authorization to use U.S. military force against Iran unless specifically authorized by Congress. At the beginning of the Trump administration, one of President Trump's then advisors, Steve Bannon, invited you to meet with President Trump, and he has praised you in the past. Describe your relationship with Steve Bannon, if any. There's no, there's no relationship. I got an invitation to go and talk to President Trump specifically about my views on foreign policy specifically about my views on ending regime change wars, uh, coming from my own experience uh, as a soldier, understanding not only the high human cost, but how counterproductive it is to our own national security. Uh, and that's what I did. I, I wanted to take the opportunity to hopefully try to be of influence to this person who had just been elected, who would be our next commander in chief, um, in the hopes that he would not kind of be, be grabbed up in the claws of the neocon war hawks uh, of the likes of John Bolton, which unfortunately it appears what has happened. Grabbed up in the claws of the neocon war hawks. Yeah. Bannon's at the opposite side of that in a sense. He's a nationalist. Do you share any of Steve Bannon's nationalism? Oh, I'm not going to you know, get into what Steve Bannon believes or any of that. I believe in serving my country. I love our country. I love our people. <laughs> it's why I'm running for president to be able to be in that position to end these wasteful regime change wars, work to end this new Cold War we're in, de-escalate these tensions, 
uh, prevent us from getting to this place of a nuclear war and make sure that we're investing right. the trillions and of beyond dollars. Steve Bannon, President Trump has used that phrase nationalist. I just wonder, do you, do you ever I, just I consider yourself a nationalist? Put, I think we need to put the American people first. I think that a lot of these things are used to divide people when really, I'll tell you, folks who I'm meeting out in communities across the country, they're just saying, hey, I'm struggling just to put food on the table. I just want to make sure my kid gets a good education, that my family has clean water to drink, clean air to breathe, that, that our farms are not going to be flooded by failing levees and failing infrastructure. These are the things that I'm focused on and why it's so necessary to address the cost of our current foreign policy and the direction we're headed, and to take those resources, those trillions of dollars, and actually invest them in serving the needs, the urgent needs of the American people. Just in a, the last few minutes we have here, a little bit of a lightning round. Uh, New York Magazine has a big story, a profile up of you. It talks about your religious background. It mentions a man named Chris Butler. Are you still part of his group? Uh, I'm not going to comment on that article. That was a smear article that, that was uh, based on uh, a bunch of things that people who don't know anything about me said. So, but just on the. So if you want to ask me, am I religious. a practicing Hindu? Yes, I'm a practicing Hindu. Uh, I, I study and, and draw great inspiration from the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, I was raised in an interfaith home, uh, dad Catholic, mom Hindu, and really uh, the values that I grew up with had to do with trying to dedicate my life in the loving service of God and, and service of and others. Understood. And I understand you don't want to comment on that article, but just for clarity purposes, that name, Chris Butler, repeatedly mentioned an article, that article and a few others about you. Mm -hmm. How would you describe? He's one of my spiritual teachers. One of your spiritual, what does that, what does that mean? Uh, one who provides spiritual guidance. Has he been a mentor politically or is it just spiritually? No, no, not at all. Uh, what about your homeschooled? How has that informed your position in education? I value education greatly. Both my parents are teachers and uh, I feel grateful to have had the opportunity to have the education that I've had where there was a lot of flexibility. I was able to focus on different things um, that I was really good at, spend more time on other things that I wasn't uh, very good at. Um, I think we need to dedicate far more resources to our public education system to make sure ultimately uh, whatever the, the skills and talents that, that each of our kids has, that they're able to maximize those and be set up for success for our future. You quit the Democratic National Committee in 2016 because of the way it treated Senator Sanders. Do you have confidence in Chairman Perez and the DNC this time around to provide a fair process? You know, I resigned as vice chair of the DNC um, so that I could endorse Senator Bernie Sanders, uh, specifically because as a veteran, I felt a sense of responsibility to speak out on um, the, the qualities that I felt are necessary in, in a commander in chief. I think that some of the rules that have been uh, put out this go around have provided more transparency and I think, and, and I think more fairness, um, as, at least at this point, as we're going through the process. Should President Trump be impeached? I believe that the American people need it's a relevant to, question. I believe that the American people need to be the ones to remove Donald Trump from office in 2020. That's why I'm running uh, and, and plan to do so. Last question. If you're the Democratic nominee for president, who would be on your short list for VP? I have no idea. That's not what I'm thinking about. Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard of Hawaii, thank you very much. Thank you, everybody. Good to talk to you. Aloha. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.